We're not uh, speaking on the book of Revelation this morning, but just like John opens in uh, the book of Revelation, uh, my prayer for our time together is that you would be blessed as we uh, share the word together and as we look to Jesus. So I wanted to share uh, something that happened in my life that kind of leads, I'm going to move this out of the way here. Sorry, Robin. Um, uh, Something that happened in my life, it's been a while now. It was 2011. Can you imagine back that far? Whole other world. (laughs) I was working as a barista at the time. I was also a worship leader at a church. My daughter Maggie had just been born. And I had also recently suffered an automatic withdrawal from college because of my poor attendance record. Uh, Bible college, by the way. Don't worry, I got more education along the way. But uh, so I I had an automatic withdrawal there. I also, for three months, I joined a worship band with a friend of mine from said Bible college as a bass player. I'm really not that good of a bass player, but I can hold it down, you know? And so, uh, but I didn't last long (laughs) in that season. And all that to say, I I was in a season where I was looking for God to move. And I was looking for the next step in my life. I was looking for the new thing. I was looking for the more that I believed that God had for me. And I, I wasn't quite finding it yet. I was just trying a bunch of things, and I was really stirred up in this time, so I even, this is how foolish I was as a young person, I even took this big step of faith, it was good, but it was a big step of faith where I put in my notice at the church saying, in three months, I'm going to be out of here. Not, I was more couth about it, but, um, you know, to say that, but you know, I, that was a big step, saying, I, I'm, I have this much faith that I'm going to step out and put in my notice at work. And so, all that to say, at that moment, God was silent. And I really started to doubt myself and be like, well, and just doubt what I had been hearing. I would have these conversations with God, being like, God, did I miss this? Did I misunderstand what you were saying? Because I was really sure that something new was about to happen. And within that time, one day, out of the blue, I got a phone call from someone I'd never met in my entire life named Phil McCoy. He was the pastor at East Vancouver Community Church. And he let me know that they were a part of the conference. Check. That's awesome. But then uh, we're a part of a family of churches We call ourselves the Pacific Conference. So if I ever say conference, that's what I mean. Um, There you go. But so he let me know that they were looking for a pastoral intern to learn how to be a lead pastor and eventually uh, be an heir apparent to his leadership at the church. And so he said, let's have breakfast. Let's get together. And I said, yes, let's do it. And so we scheduled it out. We went to Elmer's for... Uh, for breakfast. I hadn't really been to Elmer's, but that's beside the point. We scheduled it out. We really hit it off. It was really good. Uh, We ordered our food. Um, Like I mentioned last week, one of my favorite breakfasts is 
uh, country fried steak. And so I, I'm pretty sure, I can't remember exactly, but I'm pretty sure I ordered that with eggs and all the fixings and everything, and the food came. This is going somewhere, by the way. And um, when the food came, I did something that I never did when I was growing up, that I never learned when I was growing up, but I did learn it after being married to Angie. Um, I, I had learned how to honor people when they make you food. And so you try it first before you put the seasoning salt on. I'm someone who loves salt, by the way, too. Because I just, man, I love salty food. It probably means something. But anyway, um, so I tried all my food. And Phil, he was always a guy with an anecdote. He always had a story for something. And he took notice of this because I didn't, I just, I tried my food before uh, before I put my salt on. And he told me the story about how Henry Ford um, was accepting applicants for some job that was open at his factory and uh, took the applicant out for a meal. Really good. Um, things were going really well until the food came. And the guy just grabs the shaker of salt and starts just loading it on. And, you know, whatever condiments that were available too. And so as the story goes, Henry Ford stopped the meeting there and he said, you know, go ahead, enjoy your meal. You know, you've earned it, you've come this far, but uh, I decided not to go with your application. I'm going to choose someone else. And the guy was really confused because he thought, we were going really good here. Things are good. What happened? And so he mentioned how, you know, you didn't even try your food before you seasoned it. How did you know that you wouldn't like it? Why would you just add something to it if you didn't know? And so um, he used that as an anecdote to say, kudos, good job. So I got a call later in the day basically saying, you got the job, the position's yours. And so I called Angie and confirmed that that was a good decision. But Phil had chosen me as his intern. Fast forward a couple of years, Phil accepted a pastoral assignment to a church in Georgia, his home state. He was very happy to go home to Georgia. Um, And I was expecting, as the heir apparent, that I was going to be on this list of applicants who would be considered to be the pastor at East Vancouver Community Church. I was working at the conference office at the time. I had constant access to the superintendent. It was awesome. And so we went out for a meal, and I just asked him straight out, hey, am I on the list or not? And he told me no, and he went on to tell me why. And he essentially said that I couldn't preach my way out of a wet paper sack, which, to his credit, was true at the time. That church was so patient with me. I, I won't waste time telling you all the examples of how bad it was. I wasn't heretical or anything, but it was not good. So he said basically, look, you can't preach. I'm really sorry. So we're going with other applicants. And so I was not chosen for this position. And so I think at some point or another, we all experience this nature of a thing of being chosen or not. And I'm getting head nods, and so everybody, you know, here we go. 
Today we're going to be looking at a time in the life of Jesus when he calls his first disciples. He chooses his disciples. And what we can learn about that from Jesus and his heart for us this morning. Because we've all experienced the anxiety of playing sports with schoolmates, right? Waiting for the captains to choose us for their team. Um, especially if those captains were the popular kids, right? We've all experienced maybe the joys of getting chosen or the pain of not getting chosen from that, for that promotion or that dream job that you want. We've all experienced the fear and excitement of getting to choose a spouse and hope to all goodness that they say yes um, on this journey for the rest of our lives. We make all kinds of choices each and every day. And so choices and being chosen is really a part of every commonplace in our life. So, Richard, you can go to the next slide. The title for today's message is Chosen. And our passage today is going to be Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 22. And the big idea that we're going to be exploring together is that Jesus wants you to follow him. Jesus wants you to follow him. Simple but profound. But before we dig into our text today, let's take a look at a little bit of background uh, for what we're about to read. Richard, you can go to the next slide. So in first century Jewish culture, education was split up into a three-part process, kind of like how we have in our world today um, with, you know, elementary school, junior high, high school. So I'm not going to say the Hebrew name for it because I think that would just be it wouldn't add to your life necessarily. And so I'm just going to reference these steps as elementary, mid, and high school. And so starting at age six, students, they would go to their local synagogue, and everything was centered on the Bible because they wanted to make sure they didn't end up back in exile again. So they studied the scriptures as a community. They would have local meetings like this at least once a week. Everything centered around the Bible. And so students at age six would go to their local synagogue led by a rabbi who was their version of a teacher, and their primary goal was to learn and memorize by heart every word in the first five books of the Bible. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, which is really boring, and Deuteronomy, all memorized. Now, by age 10, most people, most of the kids, they had dropped out. They had gone to uh, go learn their family trade. You know, if you were a fisherman, you'd go learn from your dad how to be a fisherman. If you were, uh, you know, a blacksmith or something, you would go and learn how to do that trade. So you would do that, or if you were a girl, you would go and learn how to manage a home. I'm sorry, ladies, but here we go. So, I mean, you would learn these things... And most kids by age 10, they were doing that because the age of coming of age was 12. So anyway, but the best of the best, they would go on to middle school and have that experience. And they would endeavor then to memorize the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. That's a lot of books, by the way, from Genesis through Malachi, the entire Old Testament, every word by heart all memorized. And again, by the end of middle school, most kids had either chosen to withdraw themselves 
because they're like, this is too much. I can't do this. I'm good with the first five. (laughs) Um, Or, you know, maybe, you know, mom and dad, they needed help with the home or the family business, that kind of thing. But the best of the best, they would go on to high school. High schoolers, whoo, awesome. Now, what they would do, this is how cool this is. I don't know. They must have just been brainiacs, these kids, is that they would, so they've already memorized all of Scripture up until that point. Then they start to just pour over the oral and written tradition about the Bible called the Talmud. And they would spend years pouring over what other rabbis had said about the Scriptures. And during that time, different rabbis would travel through town. They'd stop through the local synagogue and engage in these super heady theological conversations about the rules and ideas that are in the scriptures. Now, the step beyond this part of schooling, I knew you you were waiting for this, was college. They didn't call it that, but college. This was discipleship. And the best of the best students, they would go to a rabbi and they would apply to be this rabbi's disciple. And being a disciple was more than just that transfer of information. Um, I wish it was, but it wasn't. Um, Being a disciple was a whole life commitment to adopting that rabbi's interpretation of God's word and becoming like that rabbi in every way. It got a little ridiculous. I won't go into all the details, but it was crazy. Anyway, talking like the rabbi talked, doing what the rabbi did, and living like him in every way that you could possibly do, being like the rabbi so that one day you could be the rabbi. So the applying student, they'd go to this rabbi that they'd want to learn from, and they would ask him, Rabbi, I want to be your disciple. And he would get grilled on his knowledge of the scripture and the oral tradition and asking question after question to see does this guy really have the stuff to be my disciple can he actually be like me and so if the rabbi thought that was the case then he would say come take my yoke upon you and become my disciple but that was not a guarantee Just because you applied to college, just because you had the really great grades, didn't really mean that you were automatically 100% going to be chosen to be this guy's disciple. Instead, the rabbi got to choose to either accept or to reject a student. And so let's say it was a rejection, you know, all that painful stuff that we've all experienced before. The rabbi would say, basically give the rejection letter saying, you're a really awesome candidate. Clearly, you love God. You know the law. That's awesome. But you just don't have what it takes to be like me. So go, learn your family trade, make babies, and pray that they would one day become rabbis. (laughs) How inflated is that? I mean, whew. But that was how much respect they had for rabbis back then. And so these students who weren't chosen, they didn't make the cut. They didn't make the grade they didn't make the team um, and they would go back home and they would go to now build this god-honoring life maybe they'd even be a good contributor to the community like uh, being a good businessman 
getting involved in local commerce. For the people in that area, it was fishing um, or a couple of other things, but you might be a blacksmith or a carpenter. You might be doing all these things to provide for your family, but I imagine that they'd have to live with that disappointment of not being chosen. They could have the greatest wife in the world. They could have the most compliant, wonderful kids in the whole wide world. But the majority of people in the community, oddly enough, were people who had not been chosen. So this is the world Jesus grew up in. And with this culture, Jesus began his earthly ministry as a traveling rabbi. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. I have it up there on the screen if you need it. Um, Let's read together. All right. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He went first to Nazareth. Remember, that was his hometown. Okay, then left there and moved to Capernaum, beside the Sea of Galilee in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This fulfilled what God said through the prophet Isaiah. In the land of Zebulun and Naphtali beside the sea, beyond the Jordan River, in Galilee where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who lived in the land where death casts its shadow, a light has shined. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net into the water for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father, Zebedee, repairing their nets, and he called them to come too. They immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. Richard, you can go to the next slide. The first thing that I think is really revealed in this passage is that Jesus knows who you are, and he sees where you're at. So along the shoreline, Jesus saw these four young fishermen. He had just moved to town, so we don't know from the text if they had had any previous interactions before. We don't know if they had gone out to hear Jesus preach his riveting, simple, radical message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. We don't know this uh, because it's not recorded. But right there in verse 18 and 19, we're going to camp out there for our time today. We read that Jesus saw them. Kind of like how if you were to pass by a construction site or maybe if you were to go by a, a mechanic car garage, you would see tradespeople, people using their skills to do these things that they have been given to do. They might make a pretty good living from it because even though I have an undergraduate in English, that doesn't get you very far. If you want to go and actually make some money, being a mechanic's better. <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. But 
what would be noticeable to Jesus is that these were not the religious elite. These were common tradespeople who were in the thick of it, doing what they needed to do to provide for their family, and Jesus calls them, come follow me. And we know from our background here is that these men would not have been the ones who made the cut in school. At some point, they had not been chosen by the local rabbi to continue in their studies. Even if they'd gotten all the way through high school, they went to apply to be a rabbi's disciple, they were the ones that were told, you, you can't do it. You can't be like me, so go do your trade, make a family, here we go. These were the not good enoughs, these were the rejects, these were, the, these were not the best of the best. So Richard, you can go to the next slide. I, there's a few observations here for me that I see here. They did not call on Jesus. Jesus called on them. So what Jesus was doing, he was doing something very radical. It was considered radical in the day because rabbis didn't just go call their disciples. Disciples had to come to them. And so what Jesus already was doing was saying, I want these guys. And from what we read in this text, number two, is that they had no testing whatsoever. Amen? Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. No testing. There was no grilling on their knowledge of the scriptures. There was no grilling on their knowledge of the oral tradition whatsoever. The only thing that qualified them was Jesus' choice. That Jesus said, you can become like me. You can become a rabbi like I am a rabbi. Now, all of this speaks to me that Jesus wants you to follow him. I know that's a bold, simple statement, but I believe it's true. Just like Peter, Andrew, James, and John, we are chosen. Not because of what we can do or the usefulness that we have in the kingdom, We are chosen before we can do anything to prove our worth. We are chosen simply because we are known and loved by a good, good God who sees us and wants his good for us, and he wants us for us, not because of anything we can do for him and not because we can be impressive to him and win his approval. The truth is that Jesus knows who you are and he sees where you're at. And no matter what you've done, where you've been, or even where you are this morning, Jesus wants you to follow him. You are chosen. Now the next thing we see revealed in our passage, you can go to the next slide, is that Jesus calls you to participate in the process. Jesus calls you to participate in the process. So uh, go to the next slide. Between the call to follow and the promised outcome is the process. In verse 19, Jesus said, come and follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. The English Standard Version says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men now in both 
translations, I believe they are both valid. It doesn't really change the meaning. It just changes the application because really the process is discipleship. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they were all being called out of their current situation and into being formed in their life and their skills to be like Jesus and the example set by Jesus. It's really easy to picture skills. And so it's beyond all of this, but it kind of maybe helps a little bit. Is kind of like painting. Some of us love that, some of us don't. Uh, maybe shooting pool. Have you ever seen those really cheesy moments and uh, where uh, you know a guy is trying to impress a girl and so he comes up and like tries to show her how to shoot the pool cue and everything, right? Or maybe like knitting a scarf. Have you ever tried knitting a scarf before? Show of hands. Maybe any of you. It's really hard. Can I just say that it's ridiculously hard? I have an example. Once. Count it once a long time ago, Angie taught me how to do a basic knit, uh, knitting pattern to knit her a scarf, and I did. I, I powered through for one whole day, and I made an entire scarf. It felt awesome, but also intimidating, and I didn't know how to finish it. But <laughs> So it turned out okay, and you know, it may have turned out kind of more like one of those cakes on the TV show, Nailed It, where it's like, here you go, nailed it, here we are. Um, And so maybe it turned out okay, but it wasn't like being made by an expert knitter or somebody who had a lot of experience. My time as a knitter was very short-lived. It was to that one project, objective achieved, you know? And like most skills, I didn't use it, so I lost it. And I've since forgotten how to even cast on in order to knit anything. Uh, You knitters in the room, you know what's up. If I had wanted to really get into this art of knitting, I would need to practice. I would need connection to some knitter, some master knitter that's farther along in their knitting journey than I am, I would probably have to ask a lot of questions and watch how they would cast on for certain projects and certain things. And personally, I know I'm good at arts and crafts, not to brag, but I am. I'm good at those things, but I would need regular accountability and affirmation telling me I'm doing a good job and whether I was doing it right. It would be a process. In a similar way, discipleship is a process that is you being spiritually formed into the likeness of Jesus. Discipleship was and continues to be Jesus' method for building his kingdom. He didn't come in guns a-blazing like we will eventually see in Revelation once we get there. He didn't come in with a big army and say, here we go, you know, comply or die or that kind of thing. He didn't do that. He didn't build his kingdom that way. He started with these blue-collar, run-of-the-mill fishermen who didn't make the cut, didn't make the grade, and yet he chose them. What hope there is for you and me? 
because I don't know about you, but sometimes I act a fool. <laughs> and, that's, um, and sometimes I need help. And sometimes I need to know that there is a process in place that Jesus wants me to participate in. That's why for the church, we're not here yet, by the way, but eventually I want us to have a process of discipleship because that's really the call of the church. And just like uh, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, we're not going to be there for another year or so, there is this call, this commission that Jesus gives the disciples. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. There's that word make again. And so what that means is that they were then released to go and do what Jesus had been doing and teaching them all along. And so for you and I, as we engage in discipleship together, it's kind of like um, how it says in Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. What that means is that it, this process is done in interpersonal relationship. So, for example, if someone else is farther along in their journey than I am, they get to help me along. And vice versa, if there's somebody else that I meet that needs help and needs to be you know, brought to growth and maturity, then I get to help them too. And that's that process of discipleship. And Jesus wants us to participate in it. He doesn't just want us to partner. I think there's a difference there because participation means that you're actually just you're you're engaged and you're receiving something you're not just doing something jesus wants to make sure that you know that he wants you for you not just because of what you can do now he'll teach you what you can do and it's amazing but he wants to develop that character in you that quality in you that comes from discipleship and he did that with his disciples in closing i don't really have a lot of uh, things written down, so I'll shut that for the time being. In, in summary, I think this leads us to this point that we've had up for a while, that Jesus hopes for you and he believes for your future. I, as I was preparing, I, I was uh, looking at other resources that I have and um, being reminded that, you know, we talk a lot for good reason about believing in Jesus and believing in God. And that is absolutely essential. It's true. It's amazing. And I want us all to believe. I think it's equally as good for us to remember and receive the fact that as children of God who have put our faith and trust in Jesus, God believes in us too. He believes that we can do what he's done and then some. <laughs> because there's even that verse, that we'll probably get there eventually in the Gospels, where he says, you will do even greater things. And we can talk about that another time. But we can, he has these plans for us. And so he speaks into our hopelessness and into just wherever we are, if we're in, in doubt or we're in disappointment or maybe we're, you know, uh, maybe you're in the place where you look back on life and you think, man, if only this would have happened. 
Or if only I had made this decision, then I would be better and farther along. I think what Jesus wants to tell you this morning is that your whole story belongs. Every step, God has been with you, whether you felt it or not, whether you've been acting a fool or you've been on the straight and narrow path, whether, you know, all of those things, God still chooses you when you're walking away from him. God still chooses you when you trip up. And he still chooses you when you succeed and you're on a good path and and things are going really well. And you might be farther along and you're, you're on that path of discipleship and getting better to become more and more like Jesus in that process. And so sometimes I think, I know for me, I don't know about y'all, but sometimes I forget that Jesus hopes for me. And sometimes I forget that Jesus actually believes in me and believes that I can do these things that he's given me to do. And so uh, as the worship team comes up, we're going to close and talking about Jesus and we're going to sing a song. Uh, It's a really good uh, old gospel tune. But I just want to encourage you that wherever you're at today, Jesus wants you to follow him. Um, He's serious about it. He actually, he does want you.